to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is patient advocate and educator, Andrew Gabriel who through his own experience with prostate cancer and his advocacy work has become a well-known leader of patient support groups and a recognized source of knowledge on hormone therapy. His hugely popular talks called Surviving Hormone Therapy has been attended by hundreds of patients and clinicians who value its honesty and its candor. Andrew is part of Prostate Cancer UK's Patients as Educators program, which supports clinicians in their patient engagement. Andrew, it's lovely to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on On Focus. Oh, hello, Claire. It's lovely to be here as well. Listen to uh, listen to many of your uh, podcasts before, so it's uh, it's really great to to actually participate in one. Yeah, well, hopefully the first of, of many. And, and you have so much to say about hormone therapy. So why don't we we jump right in? And one of the things that we we've talked about before is about the use of hormone therapy during the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you can comment on if it's if it's increased or what you've noticed. And do you think that the challenges that men face under hormone treatment have, has actually been exacerbated during this period? It's a very interesting question. Um, I, I perhaps ought to sort of explain for, for listeners who are not familiar with what hormone therapy does, you know, mm -hmm. why it's used. So the prostate gland in men is required for fathering children and it produces some components of semen. Contrary to what many men sort of heading into prostate cancer treatment might imagine, it's not required for erections and it's not required for orgasm. Although the erection nerves run around the outside of it, so some of the treatments you have to be really careful and there is a risk to that mechanism. The prostate is activated by testosterone, which causes it to produce the, the semen contributions that it, that it normally generates and causes it to grow. And most cases of prostate cancer are also driven by testosterone. So you can kind of switch off prostate cancer, at least temporarily, by switching off testosterone. Mm -hmm. And that's what the hormone therapy does. Mm -hmm. So it basically switches off the testosterone temporarily while you're on the hormone therapy. In order to sort of think, has the use of hormone therapy grown during this period of COVID? It's kind of useful to think how it's used. So there are probably about four different reasons that it would be used in prostate cancer. So it's often used to shrink the prostate. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a whole gland treatment, for example, external beam radiotherapy or brachytherapy, it's useful if the prostate's not too big. You know, you can use a narrow beam so it hits less of the other organs, or you can use fewer seeds in the brachytherapy. So patients are often put on hormone therapy for that purpose. That's probably not significantly changed. Mm -hmm. um, it improves radiotherapy outcomes, mm -hmm. uh, more so for the aggressive cancers. So that, again, is something that's probably similar. For incurable prostate cancer, it increases longevity. Unfortunately, it doesn't work forever, but it does give many men many years. Many Extra time, years. yeah. Yeah, so, so it's important for that. But there is a new use for it that's cropped up during the COVID era. Okay. So often it's not been possible to continue with diagnosis or to perform some treatments that were decided upon immediately because mm -hmm. some facilities were not available, some staff were not available, operating theatres got turned into ICU, anaesthetists got taken off to be intubating COVID patients. Lots of those things interfered with the normal running of hospitals. 
So what do you do with a man who's got prostate cancer and you're halfway through diagnosing but you can't now do a biopsy or diagnosed he's chosen that he's going to have um, prostatectomy but he can't have it because no operating theatre is available. Yeah. Well, you can put him on hormone therapy because the yeah. hormone therapy pauses the cancer at that point and it will pause it for long enough that you can, generally speaking, get through these temporary COVID disruption. Mm-hmm. And did you see this happen? Oh, yes, that happened a lot. Now, there's probably one other effect which I saw happen quite a bit, and that is that some men who chose prostatectomy actually then discovered it wasn't available because, going back to this problem, no operating theatres, no anaesthetists, because they're being used for other purposes, and then switched choices. And they, they might have switched then to excellent radiotherapy, and that would normally come with hormone therapy. So there will have been some increased use of hormone therapy in that scenario. Some men had longer periods on hormone therapy before they started their radiotherapy than normal. That mm-hmm. I don't think is an issue because actually getting your PSA down really low, which is mm-hmm. what the hormone therapy will do yeah. before radiotherapy has some advantages. Yes. But undoubtedly, I don't think any figures will be available yet. And we haven't come out of COVID um, interfering with treatments completely. But I, I suspect that there is a higher use of hormone therapy during this period in terms of proportion. Okay. Now, of course, one sad fact here is that an awful lot of men have not gone to their GPs and got tested during this period. So, in fact, the referrals for prostate cancer dropped very significantly. And there are, you know, there are tens of thousands of men who haven't been referred who would normally have been referred. And that does translate to rather a lot of men who are walking around probably with high-risk prostate cancer who don't know and are not diagnosed, who would normally have been diagnosed in, in the absence of COVID. So, but, I mean, the, the first group, on when you mentioned about the um, possible increase in hormone therapy, yeah. and you mentioned two groups, you mentioned that the second group, which was those that might have um, elongated periods on hormone therapy while they were waiting yes. for treatment or for interventional treatment. And then yes. you mentioned a, another group, which might be those that are put on hormone therapy simply to, to pause during the period of their diagnosis and before treatment could become available. I mean, do you have That's any right. knowledge of that or any, I don't imagine you have any data, but do you have any knowledge of how you... Oh, yes. Pl- plenty of patients in, in our support groups have, um, have experienced that who... who you know, really? been diagnosed during this period of COVID. And were they were they counseled beforehand? Because, you know, I mean, something else that you talk a lot about is, you know, <laughs> what the effects are, of course, of, of this therapy on um, the healthy mind and the healthy body. Um, I think they were counseled to the extent that they were, I mean, it wasn't compulsory. It was, would you like to do this? Yeah. Um, because it was new. But no, as you know, as you've heard me say before, men are not really counseled when they start on hormone therapy. That's another big topic. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. We might talk about. Well, we we will direct people to to your um, your program on surviving hormone therapy. But I, I did just want to touch on it. But I want to pick up yeah. on something else you said a minute ago, and that was again talking about the COVID era and the and the delays, or actually yeah. the, the deluge of, of patients who haven't actually presented with, with you know either with symptoms or without, but haven't been tested. And one of the things that I hear, and I'm curious about your experiences, is how random PSA testing is. And I'm just wondering how you see that amongst, you know, the, the, the people you engage with and, and how you might think this, this could be fixed. That's a very interesting question. So it's both random and not random in okay. different respects. If you consider, for example, a, a guy working in a high-end job in an office, possibly with private annual medical checks, those will always include PSA tests. PSA mm-hmm. tests are really cheap, so 
you know, they would always be included in those. Mm-hmm. That guy will get picked up really early uh, yes. when he's got prostate cancer because he will have been having annual PSA tests uh, and a trend of a rise that, that's excessive will be very quickly picked up. Then if you sort of drop down to the bulk of the population, some people are aware of the risks of prostate cancer, but most people aren't. Mm -hmm. Those who are aware might go to their GP and ask for a test. And some GPs will give them a test. Some GPs will talk them out of the test. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that starts to become random in in that cohort. And, And it depends very much on the GP's attitude to that. As you sort of move down the the socioeconomic scale, people are less likely to be aware. And it's another one of these factors where people lower down the scale have poorer health outcomes. And that's because the PSA testing is entirely the patient's uh, responsibility Mm. to drive it. It's not something that's driven through the health service. And when you move down those levels, Mm -hmm. those patients are predominantly not going to be aware and they're not going to go to a GP until they've got symptoms. And, of course, you actually want to pick prostate cancer up before you have symptoms because uh, Mm. you have a much better chance of a cure with fewer side effects. Indeed, indeed. But then you come down to the actual ethnic minority communities who Mm. who engage less with healthcare anyway. And at a higher risk as well. Absolutely. Mm. Um, So they've got this double whammy. They get prostate cancer generally much much earlier and tend to get more aggressive prostate Mm -hmm. cancers. Mm -hmm. And those people just don't get picked up you know often not until they, they've got quite serious symptoms so yes there's a big random element in there but there's also a stratification according to your you know your social status like i'm afraid many there are many aspects of healthcare. And yes there are this with covid and and other things recently uh yeah we could we could talk about this and maybe that's the subject of another interview but, <laughs> but something else i want to pick up on about sort of about the hormone treatment because i know that's that's something yeah. you know a lot about but we've talked a little bit about informed consent and you know what what it means for a patient to see it or to consent to a treatment recommendation and i i just want to know if this comes up in conversations with the men you deal with do you see this playing out do people feel that they had informed consent? Do they feel that there might be some initial steps to possibly improve that process? Yes, this comes up quite a bit. I mean, the the words informed consent are not necessarily used because it's not a term patients necessarily are familiar with. But yes, when you consent to a treatment, you need to be informed, which means that you're given all the information about the treatment, including benefits and risks, and what alternatives there might be, and what will happen if you don't have the treatment and what Mm -hmm. other options you've got. That doesn't happen. Patients sort of become aware of this later. Generally, you get put on to hormone therapy the moment you're you know, diagnosed with prostate cancer, possibly after a bit of decision making about treatments. But it depends if you've got any choice of treatments you may not have, depending on the stage of your cancer. Mm-hmm. And no, it's done just like you know, going to the GP and, and getting some antibiotics. Oh, here's a prescription. Start these pills. Mm. Um, it's a little bit more complicated because usually a couple of weeks later, you start some injections as well. But it's not nothing much is is said about that i'd actually sort of read about it a bit because i was expecting that this would happen to me so I, I wanted to know about it but when the urologist said to me oh and you're starting hormone treatment he didn't say anything about it i said well and um, what are the side effects you know what he said he said your penis will get shorter goodbye really <laughs> that was it. 
Um, yeah. And wow. I, I nearly fell over I nearly fell over laughing. It wasn't quite the moment to do. No, that. In, in, but, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and and does this come up, you know, is this a shared sentiment or a shared experience with um, the men you deal with in your yes, groups? Because of course you talk with men who've actually been on hormone therapy a while and, and of they say, Well, nobody told me this was gonna happen. Yeah. And many of these men are going for radiotherapy. And when you go in for the radiotherapy, you get a multi page document that lists all the things that might happen to you and you have to sign it. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the men that went for the hormone therapy and radiotherapy and talk to them, you know, sometime after the treatment, they will typically say the radiotherapy was a non-issue. You know, it was a few weeks of loose bowels and having difficulty, you know, retaining a bladder full of water. Mm-hmm. Um, the hormone therapy, however, was a major effect on their lives. Yes. And nobody went through the process of describing that to them. There's a whole load of things that you really need to do to look after your health while you're on hormone therapy. Things like um, making sure that your blood pressure is monitored and that your cholesterol is monitored, that your blood glucose levels are monitored, because all these are things that hormone therapy can push up. Yeah. Uh, What do you do to prevent yourself from being at risk of osteoporosis? And a really big one, what do you do to protect your sexual function? Mm-hmm. Um, which for most men will stop working during hormone therapy. But actually, if you don't take some active measures to protect yourself, at the end of the hormone therapy, you'll find it's become permanently damaged because your sex organs don't work if you leave them for like two or three years not using them. Yeah, so uh, that's interesting because that brings us into the sort of domain of, of prehab, you know, is there a, is, is, you know, which is gaining a lot of momentum for, um, yes. for men. Is that... Is that something that you've seen successfully applied for men before specifically for hormone treatment, because we hear about it a lot before surgery. No. um, I mean, usually men don't get any warning. They're going to hormone therapy, but in order to preserve function, there's a whole set of things you need to do. And nobody offers those to you. You have to know that you need to do them. You need to go and ask, you know, can I have some PD five inhibitors? Can I have a pump? Can I have the things that will help me keep working during this yes. period when, yes. when you know those parts of my body are not going to work? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, say you come out the other end and those parts have been permanently damaged. You, mm. you, so you can't go for two or three years without an erection and expect that erections will still work because they won't. You know, it's crazy because it's a totally avoidable but major issue with prostate cancer and it just needs some education. And, and that's, you know, you mentioned my surviving hormone therapy sessions and that's something I do go into in, in quite a lot of detail and it's something that I get asked asked a lot about yeah no um, I can see I mean it's um yeah. because not many people talk about this this level of, of detail or this this level of, of openness I, I want to ask you something else that we've talked about which is um sort of equal access to treatments because you've actually said to me before that you know across the health system you know depending on where you are I mean people use the phrase postcode lottery but depending where you are you may or may not um, even be offered particular treatments. And I, I want to hear a little bit more from you about how you've seen that play out. We, we see it with focal therapy, for example, but yes. I'm interested in, in other treatments and, and how you, you see systemically that um, possibly improving. Well, when a guy gets referred uh, for potential prostate cancer diagnosis, you usually get referred to your local district hospital. Um, a lot of men don't realize that they can actually be referred to, you know, in England, you can be referred to any hospital in England. Yes. So indeed. you could ask your GP to refer you to, to you know, one of the main cancer centers. Yes. Um, or you might start at your local district hospital. 
But you go through a load of options, you're diagnosed, there's this multidisciplinary team, MDT, which is a, a team of um, all the urologists and uh, oncologists and uh, radiologists and, and, and a number of other people you never see. And that each time something changes with your case, they come and discuss it. Yes. And they'll be working out which treatments would be a good idea for you. Yes. So... You know, if your hospital offers radiotherapy and prostatectomy, either locally or via a tertiary service, so you get sent to a specialist centre, you'll get offered those. If you, know, you mentioned focal therapies, if you would have been an ideal candidate for a focal therapy, but there's nobody in the MDT that's involved in focal therapy treatment because your hospital doesn't do it and they don't mm -hmm. bring anyone in, mm -hmm. you're not going to get offered that treatment. Yeah. So, yes, you'll miss out. I see a lot of patients actually who get interested in HIFU because it does get mentioned quite a bit in the press and will actually say, well, how do I get HIFU? Mm -hmm. And then the hospital say, oh, well, you'll have to go somewhere else for that. So the patient will then take the initiative and do it. Yes. But that's the patient driving it. Yes, it is. Yes. And, and, of course, most patients won't have that knowledge. So mm -hmm. they will miss out on that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just happen with the treatments either. I see the same thing happening with diagnostic procedures. How so? so? If, if you're in a hospital that's got, for example, a PSMA PET scan, they may think nothing. If you, know, if you had a prostatectomy and your PSA has started rising and you've hit the magic 0.2, which is about the limit that some of the good, better PSMA PET scans can pick up where your cancer is, mm -hmm. they'll think nothing of just saying, all oh, right, go and get a PSMA PET scan. Oh, didn't find it. We'll wait till it's risen to you know 0.6 and we'll try again. If you're in a hospital that doesn't have a PSMA PET scanner, it'll be, well, we better stick you on hormone therapy and we'll wait a bit or, or we'll wait till your PSA gets to 8 or 10 and then we might send you off somewhere else to get a PET scan. So you can see a difference there. That delay may take you past the point where a curative treatment that you know, would have been available to you earlier on is now no longer an option because yes. the, the cancer's grown, yes. necessarily grown to get your PSA higher to meet the, the higher criteria for a, for a scan. That is like a double whammy, isn't it? I mean, you know, yes. sort of yeah. damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> so, Andrew, you, you, have, you have so much knowledge and so much accumulated know-how and experience from your own experience, as I said, and from dealing with all these other men who've gone through similar journeys. I mean, what would you say are your top challenges that these men face and when they're diagnosed with prostate cancer? And do you often find that there's often a sort of a 2020 hindsight? You know, I wish I did then what I know now or something. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you think are those challenges and how men might deal them, you know, with foresight as opposed to hindsight. It's interesting question because when you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, it's almost always out of the blue. It's something you're not an expert in. You suddenly, oh, cancer. You know, am I going to be dead in eight weeks? You don't understand it. You don't understand it. It's, it's really anxiety in gen generating because your, your future has suddenly been thrown off course and you're suddenly not in control of it anymore. Of course, yes. And there's a lot that we do in support groups to try and educate patients to teach them what's happening, make them understand their diagnosis, make them understand disease. And actually, as you start to understand things, you gradually feel that you're more in control. You understand where your direction is set. It may not be where you wanted it to be set, but it may not be as bad as you imagined from your naive position at the outset. Mm -hmm. And this really lowers level of anxiety because you, you now bring yourself more into control and you can predict the future a bit better. So what we do hear a lot is 
from patients who actually never found the support groups at that stage of their treatment. Sometimes patients come along two or three years later and say, nobody told me there was a support group. You know, mm. I've been having treatment for three years at this hospital and, and I've just discovered we've got a support group. And that's crazy because they, they're missing out on, on so much that they could have gained from it. And, you know, the, the reduction in anxiety, talking to other patients who'd had just about every possible treatment you know, to gain their experiences and understanding issues. This has got a lot worse during COVID and we don't fully understand why, but all the support groups are getting far fewer men referred to them by the hospital uh, urology and oncology departments. Oh, really? Um, yeah. It, so it's not it just a question of migrating to online, you know, Zoom groups. It's, it's more that the referrals themselves are slowing down. Yeah, we're just not getting the referrals through. And I think it probably relates to a change in the way that patients are interfacing to clinicians. So if you have a telephone call with a clinician, which has obviously become a much more, more common, that tends to be quite a short call, concentrating absolutely on the, the issue and telling you your results and yeah, asking yeah. what treatment you want. Mm. If you go into an office with a clinician, it might be, oh, how's your day? Oh, you've, you've got your cycling helmet with you. Did you cycle in today? Mm -hmm. you, you know, mm -hmm. All of that's gone. And in that conversation that didn't happen was probably the bit about, oh, have you thought about going along and joining the support group? So that's my theory as to what, what's gone wrong in this area. But we don't really know. I mean, the hospitals tell us they're telling patients and patients are finding us via mm -hmm. some other route like mm -hmm. Google, the small mm -hmm. numbers are, and say, no, nobody mentioned it to me at all. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the day that you're told you've got cancer, you're probably told several other things that, that go in one ear and out the other, to be honest. But, yes, um, indeed. In terms of sort of discussing, you know, if you do get hooked up with a support group, then you can you can talk about things like treatment options. You can talk to other patients. I don't actually hear many patients thinking that they, they picked the wrong treatment. And actually, I think that's a really negative path to go down. You made the best choice you could at that time. Maybe you didn't have as much information as you have now, but I think decision regret is something that I, I really try and steer patients away from. Yeah. Said, yeah. Don't go there. You start from where you are now. What would you do from here? Not what would you do from some position that you yes. can't get back to? Oh, absolutely. But um, Andrew, I, wasn't, I just want to say that, you know, your insights are incredibly valuable and a lot of the comments you're making, I actually haven't heard. So I really want to thank you for coming on the program today and talking to us. And, and I hope it's the first of several of these because clearly I've only scratched the surface. Well, I, I've really enjoyed it. And thank, thank you so much for asking me. I'm very happy to talk some more. Good. Links to Andrew's videos are available on the program notes to this podcast. Further information on prostate cancer treatment and how patients are determined suitable for them is available on our website, along with the transcript of this interview and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And from me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.